Improv is an amazing thing to me. No, I, acting in general is pretty tough. You can imagine people pretending to be someone else, you know, pretending to have this wide range of emotions, and they're reacting to imaginary situations. And you know, the really good actors make you feel like it's not imaginary. It's not just pretend. But then there's improv, you know, where actors have no script. They're just extemporaneously acting. So if you've ever watched an improv show, they often give actors a prompt, like you're in law school, or maybe something more complex, like you're strangers meeting for the first time on a roller coaster, but then you find out that you were twins, you know, separated at birth, something, hey, it could be anything, you know, and then they just roll with it, you know, they just start acting. And they act out, again, with no script, they don't have any, any guidance in that way. So none of the actors know what the other person's going to do, and they're just, they're just reacting. It's all improvising. And sometimes the result's pretty good. It's really amazing. You see these creative people, and they're just coming up with stuff and building this story from scratch, and sometimes it works out really well. And then there's other times it doesn't work out so much. You know, sometimes all these random responses don't fit together, and, and each actor, as somebody does one thing, they can't quite put together what they were going to do, and so they, they get derailed. And Either way, it's fun to watch. I mean, either you're watching all these creative people build this amazing story from scratch, or you're watching them all crash and burn in front of everyone. I, I enjoy both, watching both of those. But improv, what it doesn't do is doesn't lend itself to a really complex plot. It doesn't really lend itself to character development. So you, you, you have too many individual plots going on with improv. and Everybody's just going off the cuff. But when you have a script, when you have direction, that's when you can build this unified story that's going somewhere. So you can produce a movie with these great themes and these inspiring storylines. You're not going to improvise great movies like Gone with the Wind or Gladiator or, you know, Top Gun Maverick. All the best. <laughs> but our lives can be, in a similar way, I think, like, like a movie. We are actors, in a way, in God's story. And I don't want to say that to make us think that the product is simply God's doing like we're puppets and he's just puppeting us. But God is directing everything in such a way that it carries out his plans. And at the same time, how we act impacts the story. And the fact is, we don't naturally follow the direction of our director. And yet, mysteriously, his direction succeeds. His plot's going to be carried out. That's not the question. The question is how we are going to interact with it, how we're going to participate in his story. Are we going to improvise or are we going to follow the script? The story's going to be told. It's going to take place. But our experience in that story, it's going to result from how we respond. Are we going to improvise or are we going to follow the script? Now, in many ways, Scripture is a script. It's, it's helping us understand, it's directing us so that we know how we should fit into God's story. The problem is, we've chosen not to just go along with the story. We've chosen to improvise, all of us. And it's not like we're some uber-competent actor who's able to do this in such a way that it blends seamlessly with the other people around us. fact is, 
Everybody else is doing this. And, and all we've been able to do, we, we have not disrupted God's story. All we've been able to do is mess up our lives and hinder the lives of the people around us. But again, God's story proceeds. And that's what we see in the story this morning. There's really two major ways you can go. You can entrust yourself to God, to our director, follow his script, or we can ignore the director. And we can just react to what's happening. And so what we see in the passage this morning are two major ways to respond to God's story. You can entrust yourself to him, or you can react to what's happening. The distinction, you can turn to Matthew 26, if you haven't already. The distinction we see in the lives of the people here in this chapter, and in this section of the chapter, is that there are people that are reacting. They're just reacting to what's happening. And then there is one in the story who is entrusting himself to the Father. So that's what, again, we're going to see. What we're going to do is we're going to go through this story from verses 47 to 56, and then we're going to go back through and look at what each person or group how they have responded in the story. And again, most of them are just reacting. One of them is entrusting himself to the Father. So you remember where we were last week. Jesus had just left the Passover, Passover meal with his disciples, which he had transformed into the Lord's Supper. And then he brought them to Gethsemane, where he was going to prepare by prayer for the greatest test that he went through, the cross. So he sat eight of his disciples down, and then he took three of his closest disciples away with him to then, he tells them to watch with him. That's how he puts it. And then he goes just a little farther, and he prays. He prays to the Father. Then he comes back to his disciples. Each time he comes back to his disciples, they're sleeping. They're not watching and praying with him. And so three times he goes off to pray, and three times he returns to sleeping disciples. And then finally... In the end, he told them the time for his betrayal had come. And so verse 46 reads, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then verse 47 reads, While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. So notice the way Matthew characterizes Judas. See the way that these authors tell us about the people that they're referring to. As early as chapter 10 and verse 4, we know that Judas is going to be the one who betrays Jesus. And he he says that all the way back then. And yet, he at times simply refers to Judas as the betrayer. And he doesn't even use Judas at times. Jesus just did that in verse 46. Matthew's going to do it again in verse 48. But here he does say his name. He says Judas. But he adds the words, one of the twelve. And again, we already know that. That's not news. It's not been news since chapter 10. This is one of the 12. Even in this chapter, in verse 14, Matthew had said, he's one of the 12. He said that just before Judas went off to agree to betray Jesus. So it's not a, it's a, not a necessary addition. Matthew's included it here so we understand what's happening. It's how bad this is that's happening. One of Jesus' close followers is about to betray him. And Matthew actually adds more stress to what he's saying. The ESV doesn't record this word. It's a word we often translate, behold. You could translate verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas came. 
So something significant is happening and something surprising, not to Jesus, but it's surprising to the disciples. They're, they're startled by this. What was startling to them wasn't Judas coming. It was who was with Judas. It says a great crowd of swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. John adds they came with lanterns and torches. So you have this large company of people. They're armed. They're, they're lighting the way. And they come into this, this olive orchard that was previously just lit by the moon and just had 12 people scattered about it. So something's happening now. By saying that this great crowd is from the chief priests and the elders of the people, Matthew's telling us that this, this group has been mobilized by the Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish council. They were the, the people that were in charge of the Jewish people under the Romans. And Luke then tells us even that there's some of their representatives in this group. And he also tells us that the Jewish temple police are the ones that are in this group. John's wording suggests that there also are some Roman soldiers. And so the, the temple police probably are the ones with the clubs. Roman soldiers are probably the ones with the swords. And so you have this large group, this crowd, that's a, an official delegation from the Jewish authorities, the highest authorities that the Jewish people had under the Romans. And clearly they expect some trouble because they brought soldiers and police with them, armed soldiers and police. Matthew then again, he recharacterizes Judas as the betrayer in verse 48. He's preparing us for what's going to happen. And then he tells us that Judas had worked out a sign beforehand. Something that was going to point out to them which one was Jesus there in the dark. So remember, there are no TVs. There are no, there are no photographs. Even if everybody knew who Jesus was, you couldn't point him out unless you'd had a personal encounter with him. So they needed somebody in the dark who would tell them which one, which person was Jesus. And that's what Judas does. He's, he told them beforehand, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And Judas wastes no time. In verse 49, he says, and then he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. And there's nothing strange about what Judas had done. I mean, the word greetings, it's normal hello back then, probably shalom. And part of a normal Near Eastern greeting involved a kiss on the cheek. And it wouldn't have been abnormal at all for, for Judas to say, Rabbi, respected teacher. Now, Matthew, again, I mentioned this before, he's careful about who he says has used this title. But it was very normal what Judas had done. So even though the disciples were unsettled by the fact that there's this big group there, they didn't associate necessarily Judas with the group. And they wouldn't have been surprised that Judas walked right up to Jesus and greeted him. That's what they would have expected Judas to do. But Jesus, he immediately recognized the terrible, hypocritical thing that Judas was doing. The way he was betraying him. Externally, it looks respectful. It's greeting him the normal way that people greeted a teacher. But it's not respectful. He's already rejected Jesus as his teacher. He's not showing real respect because at that moment he is betraying him. He's handing him over to be arrested. And the way that Matthew and Mark word this, it seems like this was a prolonged kiss on the cheek. Like Judas is making sure they see what he's doing, who he's doing this with. Jesus responds in verse 50, friend, do what you came to do. Now that, that sentence actually is very hard to translate because the, the literal wording is friend for which purpose you come. 
It's, it's not a complete ID. You need to supply something to it from the context. So translators and scholars, they're not quite sure how you should translate it. And so you have variations in the translations. You could translate it as a command, like here, do what you came to do. Or you could translate it as a statement. So this is what you came to do, or I know what you came to do. But it could also be a question, which actually adds the least to it. For what purpose have you come? Or why have you come? Now, before you write that off, because it would be easy to write that off, because, of course, we know Jesus knows why Judas is there. Never underestimate the value of a well-timed, knowing question. Remember, in the garden, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are hiding. God isn't asking the question, where are you? Because he doesn't know where they are. He asks the question to draw them out so that they'll confess their sin. Now, then there's the word friend here. Jesus is actually used in Matthew, this, this word, two other times. And each time, the person he calls friend is not being friendly. So in chapter 20, Jesus told the story of the landowner who had hired day laborers to work at his field. And there's another day laborer at the end of the story who com- complains that this landowner has just treated him equally with the people who have done less hours. And in response, the landowner says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? And then in chapter 22, Jesus told the parable of the wedding banquet. And after the banquet hall is full, the king notices there's somebody here who's not dressed properly. And he goes up to the person and he says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? In both places, Jesus uses that word to be, be cordial with a person who's actually being disrespectful. And notice in each case, they're engaging that person with the question to draw them out. Now, Jesus could do something different here. But a question like this actually makes sense in the context. It's what everyone would expect someone to say when they walked into it. Peter in Joppa says something similar when people come to him. He says, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason of your coming? It's just a normal way to respond. Jesus, in this case, knows the answer. But he responds in a way that draws Judas out, to draw him out so that he has the opportunity to confess what he's doing. It's actually very merciful, I think, what he's doing. It's really, it's confronting Judas in a merciful way, saying, friend, why are you here? Maybe even as if to say, do do I need to say it or will you say it? That then leads to verse 50 that says, Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now, it's redundant to say laid hands on someone and seized them, but Matthew does that so we kind of see what's going on. It's like slow motion. And then he goes on and tells us about what one of the disciples reacts, how they react to the situation. Verse 51 says, And behold, one of those who, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Again, it's like slow motion. He he stretched out his hand. He drew his sword. He cut off the servant's ear. You know, each statement is just showing us what it's what it's like. We can picture this. I think A.T. Robertson has a good explanation for why the the synoptic gospel writers don't include Peter's name, but John does. What Peter just done is worthy of being arrested for. I don't think the synoptic writers who were writing while Peter was still alive are going to give the authorities 
any chance to identify who this person was. If Jesus needs to be identified in the dark, then of course the person who does this needs to be identified. But John's writing after Peter's been martyred. So you can let the cat out of the bag. This is who it was. Now Luke records this explanation that Jesus gives in Luke prior to this, that things are changing. So in, in Luke, uh, Jesus had told them, hey, you don't need to bring a sword when you go throughout Israel when you share the gospel. But in chapter 22, he says, now you need to get a sword. And they, at that point, reveal that they have two swords. Jesus says, that's enough. So Peter evidently is one of the ones that's packing heat at this point. And clearly, he does not understand what Jesus meant with those words. And so he pulls his weapon out and he strikes the servant of the high priest. In all likelihood, he's trying to take his head off. And he misses. So in this Barney Fife moment... All he's able to do is lop off an ear. And Luke kindly tells us that Jesus healed that. But Jesus responds quickly. He says, put your sword back into its place. And then he makes three statements, three, three points about why Peter had just done the wrong thing. James Boyce, following William Hendrickson's work, he, he summarizes these three problems this way. He says that they're dangerous. What Peter has done has, is dangerous, unnecessary, and mistaken. So he's saying, put your sword away, Peter. What you're doing is dangerous. He says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Generally speaking, speaking if your response is violent, you're going to experience a violent end. It's not an absolute statement of pacifism. Jesus has already told them to get a sword. He tells Peter to put his sword back in its place, not to throw it away. But what Peter's doing, the way he's going about this, he's going to get himself hurt probably others hurt, it's going to just lead to more violence. And beyond that, it's unnecessary. Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Let's just put this rhetorical question into focus, into perspective. In 2 Kings 19.35, one angel kills 185,000 experienced Assyrian soldiers. So, If we're doing the math, 12 Roman legions is about 70,000. So what this is basically getting at is you could, these angelic legions could take on a human army of 12.95 billion people and escape unscathed. Now, that's being generous. So the odds here, just to be, again, generous, would be a billion to one of them getting out of this, the the people that are facing Jesus. And Jesus says he could call a legion of angels for each of them, one for him and one for the 11 soldiers that remain with them. So what Peter does is like like pulling out a kid's slingshot when there are 70,000 tanks behind you. What is the point? Not only that, but it's horribly mistaken. Jesus says in verse 54, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Look, Peter, if we do it your way, how are the scriptures going to be fulfilled that says this is how it has to happen? So Jesus is once again, he's affirming that his father is in complete control of this. Everything that's happening is still happening according to plan. Now certainly there are wicked people doing wicked things, but God is at work even through that. How do we know that? Because of what Jesus says, the prophetic word has said, this is how it's going to happen. 
Scripture tells us in, for example, Isaiah 53, that this servant of the Lord is going to be put to death, but also that he would be numbered with the transgressors. That's how Jesus is being treated right then. So Peter, you're going to get yourself and others hurt. I don't need your help. And this is how it's supposed to happen. What you're doing is dangerous, unnecessary, and it's mistaken. And then he turns to the crowd. And he confronts them. He, he brings their deed into the light. And what he's really doing is confronting the people who sent the crowd. The people who dispatched them, the Sanhedrin. The Jewish leaders. Matthew highlights what Jesus says here. He, he sets it up. He leads into it with, at that hour... Jesus said to the crowds, and Jesus asks, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? That word translated robber, I think it connotes in this case insurrection. What what it's going to be used for are the two people that were crucified next to Jesus. And just just be clear, crucifixion is an extreme punishment, not reserved for simply somebody who steals something. Barabbas the one that Jesus replaces, it says specifically that he was involved in a rebellion. So what Jesus is saying here is, have you come out here with swords and clubs to capture me as though I were starting a rebellion? He's saying, that's, that's ridiculous. And then he goes on, day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Why the sudden furtive action here? He's pointing out, they didn't need to do this at night. He's been daily in the temple teaching If this was something on the up and up, they could have done it in the light. But what Jesus is doing, he's making the implication, this is not just a normal thing that they're doing. They're doing it at night because they're being sneaky. They're they're being cowardly. They don't have the guts to do this in the day, so they have to whisk him off at night. Now, Even though they've gone about this in this underhanded way, notice what Jesus then goes on to say. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. You guys have been improvising. You haven't been listening to the director. You haven't been following the script. And yet, you have, nonetheless. You haven't been trying to. Unwittingly, though, and sinfully, you have done what the Bible said was going to happen. And you're to blame for what you did. And yet, you haven't thwarted the Father's plan. He had his prophets record their actions hundreds of years ago. So they tried to go off script, but they they didn't. They didn't thwart what God was doing. Jesus then finishes these words, and in verse 56, it concludes with, then all the disciples left him and fled. So they were unfaithful to Jesus. They weren't loyal and courageous, like Scripture does call you to. And yet, they too only end up unintentionally doing exactly what was on the script. Remember verse 31. Jesus said, you will all fall away me away because of me this night for it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered and so they left and fled so let's go back through that 
Let's think about how each person or group responded to what was happening. So first of all, Judas. Let's look at what Judas's response was to what was happening. Whatever's going on in Judas's mind, I can tell you for sure, he was not thinking, what does God want me to do in this situation? We don't know what his reasons were. But it's clear he believed that it was in his best interest to betray his teacher for 30 pieces of silver. Now, Judas has seen all the miracles. He's seen this man calm a storm. He's seen him heal the sick. Seen him feed 5,000 plus and 4,000 plus people. Walk on water, cast out demons. He's even seen him raise the dead. He's heard this man teach. He's even witnessed Jesus confirm that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. None of it mattered. Maybe it's because Jesus is talking about dying. Maybe it's simply because Jesus was presenting a kingdom of God that wasn't to his liking. We, we don't know what his reasons were, but nevertheless, he thought that it would be better for him to betray this man who, in the very least, he knew was from God. Jesus is, or Judas, Judas wasn't trying to follow the script. He was improvising. He was reacting to a situation. He was reacting to it as though God isn't in control. He's reacting in his selfishness and his pride. He's reacting to what's happening in order to make what was to him a bad situation turn into something that was better for him. And unknowingly, he's still following the storyline. So his perfectly free and sinful actions have perfectly followed God's sovereign plan. His reactions, they failed him, but they have not thwarted what God was doing. So what about the Jewish leaders? Let's look at the chief priests and elders' response to what was happening. So we already, we already know that they've been plotting against Jesus in their plans. They want to wait until after this feast. That was before Judas showed up. That was a game changer for them. And so what you see is they freely planned out their course of action. And yet what's the plan that actually takes place? It's God's sovereign plan. So that the timing would demonstrate that Jesus is the Passover lamb. Now why were they doing that in the first place? So why, are, why are they betraying him? In John 3, one of their own members, one of the members of the Sanhedrin admits that they know Jesus is from God. Because no one could do the miracles that Jesus did unless that were true. He admits that. But John also mentions that they were afraid that Jesus was going to cause the Romans to destroy their temple and nation. Now, ironically, it was their treachery against Jesus that was going to do that. But what this shows is that they're concerned about themselves. That's what they care about. What God wanted didn't matter for them. And these are religious leaders. They weren't trying to listen to their director. They're improvising. They're, they're not following direction. They're just reacting to their situation. So here's a man before them who didn't do what they wanted. And they viewed this man as a threat to their little kingdoms that they made for themselves. So they didn't look to God. They plotted, they connived, they surreptitiously sent these, this army of soldiers and police 
into the night to arrest an innocent man. That's what they chose to do. Now, I, I think if you think about the kind of scenario I've, I've given, I think the options of acting according to script or improvising, you'd probably pick, pick the, the imp, improv. I think improv sounds more like what we want to do. We like the idea of being free to do what we want to do. So reacting to our situation makes sense. But you know, just like with improv, and an actor, they might have an idea of where they want to take things, but they're also dealing with other people that are reacting. So when we react to things, there's this sense that we're in control, but it's, it's an illusion. We can't control the other things that are happening. So it feels like we're in the driver's seat when we just react to our circumstances, but we aren't actually in control. We may have a plot in, in our minds, but we can't actually get ourselves there. That's not the only problem. Our reactions to what we experience, they're based on what we believe to be in our best interest. That's why we react the ways that we do. We do it because we think that's what's best for us. So what happens in a world where everybody is doing that? Everybody is self-centered. Everyone's looking out for their own interests rather than the interests of others. Now, you might have some people in your lives that you'd say, well, I'm looking out for them too, but you're still competing with everyone else to try to get your, your ideas accomplished. And I think it's easy for us to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. I mean, we're not like these guys. It's easy in a country like we have that has a lot of blessings we're not feeling trapped or threatened when that's true you can be a really nice person but when that changes it's actually when the truth comes out people react in those situations in surprising ways perfectly sensible and competent people can even turn on someone who can heal feed, even raise the dead. What about the disciples? Let's look at the disciples' response to what was happening. The way that Matthew writes, he includes Peter just with the other disciples. Again, he doesn't mention him by name. He's just one of those who were with Jesus. And even though Peter had led the way in professing his, his courage and his commitment to Jesus, the other disciples said they're right there in verse 35. So this is just one expression of the disciples who, who he's acting in, court, in accord with his self-perception. This is the way he thinks he is. He's paid no attention to what God's divine perspective on him is. As far as he's concerned, he is a strong, courageous, committed follower who's willing to risk their life for their master. And it's with that self-deluded opinion that he reacts. Jesus already has evaluated his reaction. You know, it's not well thought out. It's impulsive. It's dangerous. Not only does he threaten himself, but he threatens the people around him. I mean, he's staring at a group of people who are vastly outnumbering him and the people around him. They all have swords and clubs, and he pulls out a sword. What is that going to do? It's just going to provoke the other people with swords and clubs. It's going to get himself hurt, others show up, 
great job, Peter. Great idea. He's not trying to follow the script that Jesus has taught. I mean, before him, before Peter is this man who can speak and calm a storm. This man exudes wholeness and cleanness such that those who are unclean, who have sicknesses, they can be perfectly healed just when he touches them or even when they touch him. This is a man who not only provides for the, the masses, for the poor and sickly people who are hounding him, but he also, he provides more than enough leftovers to give each of his disciples a basket full of bread and fish. And here's a man before Peter whom God the Father had personally told Peter to listen to him when he pulled back the curtain on the Mount of Transfiguration. So why in the world would a Messiah like that need Peter to draw his sword? But again, this disciple, he's not following the script that Jesus had laid out. In this very chapter, Jesus had said in verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He told him this was going to happen. And and not only that, he's already said, this is not just a brand new prophetic pronouncement here. In verse 24, he said, this is exactly what Scripture said is going to happen. So Peter's not following the script. He's just reacting to what's happening. And how does that end? In the end, these men who believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, they all abandoned him. They chose to save their own necks rather than risk their necks. When you're reacting, that is where it leads. Now, you can, you can react in ways that you feel like this is self-sacrificing, this is courageous, but when it's not following the script of the director, it's going to lead you eventually to look out for number one, which by default we all would say is ourselves. Now, we could pick up throw, stones at this point to throw at Peter. But before we react that way, we... Need to think, do we follow the script or do we react? How would we know? Let's look at Jesus. Look at Jesus' response to what was happening. That's how we can see a contrast. First of all, Jesus is not surprised when this happens. He knew what the Bible says about the shepherd in Zechariah 13. He knew what the Bible says about the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. He knew what David's life prefigured for his future descendant. He also knew what the Passover lamb was pointing to and what all the sacrifices were pointing to. He even knew what Abraham and Isaac's trip to Mount Moriah and what that redeeming ram was pointing to. So Jesus isn't surprised. He knows what's happening. He knows the script. So that's why he can stop Peter when Peter is surprised by what's happening. Jesus understood the situation. No matter what they would do, the script was going to get followed. And again, this is not a deterministic thing, like Kang's monologue in the series Loki, if you've seen that. This isn't fatalism. This isn't the idea where, well, because God's sovereign, that must mean that our actions aren't free. That's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches something different, something mysterious that says that How the God who is beyond us works is beyond us. So in Jesus' understanding, everything that happened was supposed to happen. 
That didn't mean that Judas wasn't responsible for what he did. Jesus already said it would be better for him if he was never born. That's the severity of his punishment that he deserved. And these rulers were responsible for their chicanery. They were responsible for what they did. Nothing that happened in this moment was outside of the Father's will. And while Jesus didn't want to experience suffering, and he didn't want to be separated from his Father, what he did want was his Father's will to be done. And he had this unshakable belief that the Father's will would be done. So that's what enabled Jesus to respond differently than the reactions of the people around him. Jesus doesn't just react. He entrusted himself to his father. Because again, he knew that his father was in control. It's that unshakable belief that allowed him to show mercy to Judas as he's betraying him. It allowed him to stop Peter from more reactions. It it allowed him to confront this group of officials and armed police and soldiers. I mean, a group that would naturally be intimidating. Even while they're arresting Jesus, he has the wherewithal to confront them. How can he do that? Because he knew the script was certain and that it was what was best. So even in this very dark, very unfair, very hostile hour, it was what was best. That's why he could entrust himself to God the Father. So are we just reacting or are we entrusting ourselves to God? Are we improvising or are we following the script? Well, what does the script say? What does the script say about us? What does the Bible say? The Bible says that we are sinners. That we don't do what God intends for us to do. And that we, we need what Jesus came here for nearly 2,000 years ago. You may picture yourself as a nice person. Who's generally good. But the Bible says that if you're not paying attention to everything God's script, the Bible says that you stand condemned before your creator who will one day judge you and determine whether you've obeyed him or not. Fully and completely. But the Bible also says that Jesus came here to rescue sinners like us. Who will hear this good news about Jesus and believe it. So do you believe that Jesus really was sent from God? To die in the place of sinners who believe in him and are forgiven. Do you believe that he rose again? Do you believe that through Jesus and what he did, through through that alone, you are made right with God? Do you believe that Jesus is the king who came to rescue you from all your reactions so that you could start to follow God's script? So the most important response here is to believe that Jesus died and rose again to save you. And then to show it, show that you believe that by listening to him. So what we would encourage you to do in light of that, is to join us as we, le- we listen to what the Savior wants us to do, week in and week out. We'd encourage, encourage you to let us baptize you into our church family so that we can help each other follow our Lord and Savior. And if you want to know more about that, please talk to me after the service. But even after you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you can still react rather than follow. The disciples illustrate that. 
They believe. They still react. So in what ways might we be reacting rather than entrusting ourselves to the Father? Well, I, I think our anxiety, it might illustrate that we don't have Jesus' perspective. And what we need is to reinforce that perspective. We need to meditate on this truth that nothing can ever happen to us outside of our Heavenly Father's will. Nothing. We need to meditate on that. That doesn't mean we're not going to struggle, though. So when we struggle while we're entrusting ourselves to God, we can pray. Just as Jesus did. We can be honest with God about our struggle. But we can still conclude that what we want is what God's will is. Because we trust him. Now, we can also react by being faithless, just like the disciples do. We can do that in lots of different ways. And, and we can do that with excuses. So we can say things like, well, yeah, I wouldn't be sinning if this situation were different. If this didn't happen to me, I wouldn't do that. We can lash out thinking that, well, this is the right way to respond. We can be depressed and feel as though God doesn't care about us just because what we want to happen isn't happening. Again, that's a reaction. It's based on our self-centered views for ourselves. It's normal. We all go through these things. But it's not an example of entrusting yourself to God. We can even try to make things happen to ourselves, for ourselves. Instead of focusing on the priorities of Christ, his kingdom, his glory, and secondarily the priorities of of caring for our spouse, our kids, our church, others. But in all this, the key is to know the script. Again, God's will is going to happen. But you can either carry out the script knowingly, intentionally, or unknowingly and sinfully. We can be complicit we can want what God is doing and want to be a part of it. Or we can carry it out without knowing it and sinfully. So what we need to do is we need to treat God's word as vital to our lives. This again, I would compare this to the script. This is helping us understand how we fit into God's story. So we need to treat it as vital. We need to pay attention. On Sundays, what we're doing is we're thinking about the word and we want to obey it. We don't just want to get more information. We want to do what the word's telling us to do. And then we want to keep the word before us throughout the week, reading it, meditating on it every day. Because it's supposed to be directing us. That's how you keep from improvising. From reacting. You know and follow the script intentionally. And you do that in the power of the spirit that dwells in everyone who believes. So don't try to improvise. Don't just react. Entrust yourself to God. Join me in prayer. Father, we recognize that we are weak. And when Jesus told his disciples in the garden. Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Help us to acknowledge that we are incapable 
of even following the script without you. So, so make us prayerfully dependent on you. Help us to recognize that you have given us your spirit so that we can obey. You've given us your word to direct us. It's a light to our feet. So help us not to respond to your word here in some way that says we're going to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we're going to get it done. We're, we're dependent on you to follow in the example of our Lord. We ask that you would help us. Can't do any of it without you. Help us not to react. Bring to our mind the scripture that we know. Help us to trust you. Help us to believe, even though we can't work it out, even though it's a a mystery to us. Help us to believe that there is not a single thing that can happen to us that you have not planned for, for our good. For those that love you, those who are called according to your purpose. And we don't understand how some of these very difficult, very bad things can be for our good. But we can look at this story. What's happening to Jesus. And we can say that you know what's best. And the pain and the tragedy when people are clearly doing the wrong thing and are guilty of doing the wrong thing, help us to still trust you, to know that you are good. You can be trusted so that we don't just react. So that in the power of the Spirit, we entrust ourselves to you and we keep, keep trying in that same power to follow what you tell us. That when we're anxious, we acknowledge that we are not looking at the world the right way. When we're depressed, we acknowledge what our focus is. When we're angry, we acknowledge again that we are we're angry because of what's happened to us. When, whenever we go through these various things where we are not responding as you called us to, help us to acknowledge from the start that we are wrong, that this is not neutral, even though the world presents it as neutral. These are just things that humans do. We act in these different ways and that's just the way it is and it's okay because that's just being human that we would acknowledge that it's wrong. Yes, there are multiple reasons why we do wrong things the way that we do them. But each time the solution is not for us to simply say, well, that's just normal. That's just the way that I am. And we're weak. So as we fail... Bring to mind the truth. Bring it to our minds. Help us to meditate on the truth. We need your strength to carry this out. Father, anyone here who doesn't know you, who isn't, somebody who is resting in this good news that Jesus died them rose again his triumphant glorious Lord what he's done has accomplished definite forgiveness complete forgiveness has brought us 
into relationship with you, reconciled us to you. They don't believe that. Help, help them to see that they need to believe that, that your spirit would open their hearts to pay attention to this truth. They would turn from living as they think is best. They would believe your good news.